Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today, man, this guy is a jack of all trades. You know, he is a composer, both for film and television, but he is also an artist, sculptor. He's done many more things as well, but I'll try to talk to him about as much as I can, but we'll see how it goes. Joel Duick, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, very nice to be here and, you know, look forward to uh, talking about all of this and see where we go. Yeah, let's see how much we can get through in an hour. <laughs> so obviously I want to start off with Pokemon because that's kind of the genesis, I feel. The beginning because yeah. you were an editor on that, correct? Yeah, and you know, the, the curious thing about it is uh, I never set out in life to be a composer. Um, I kind of just like fell into it by accident. Um, which I think is not a typical story. It's just not someone you fall into. But um, I was, you know, I actually have a background in neuroscience. and I was working for the UN uh, in New York and gradually, you know, just became desperately miserable in my job and decided uh, to leave. And the first thing I did was uh, do a course in Pro Tools. And, um, and I've begun, like, been using it for quite a while. I had some chops and uh, at the end of this masterclass, the teacher who'd been offered the job of music editor for Pokemon, he asked if I wanted to do it. And I thought, I have no idea what that even means, music editor. And he said, no, you can do it. You know, I'm a drummer, so I've got a good sense of rhythm. And so I, you know, I started in this job and um, working with uh, principally two libraries that have been created by one of the music editors. Uh, one of the other music editors and um, music libraries by two composers and it taught me an enormous amount because uh firstly because i wasn't using my own music i wasn't precious about what to use and where you know i could just i just needed to help tell this story so that was kind of a first understanding the second one is that in many ways, maybe in every way, the music in a film or t television piece, it's got to support what's going on. It's not about the music. And it's easier to kind of maintain that state of mind when it's not your music again. Mm. You know, you don't have that attachment. And, you know, so I, I would kind of jerry-rig it in all kinds of ways, stretch it, shrink it, whatever needed to be done to make it work really well. And so when it came to... Um, my own music, I try to I try to hang on to some of that idea of not being precious with my own music and saying, if they want a revision, revise it. Uh, you know, if they want me to mangle it, I'll mangle it. But fundamentally, it's not about me and my music. It's about how we can tell this story most effectively. Um, so, you know, I think that was a big part of it. Because how many revisions do you often do when you compose? Well, it varies. I mean, probably the worst <laughs> scenario I had to do, I won't, I won't, everyone will remain nameless, but in this particular thing, but it was a, ma a major theme, um, a big brand theme, big orchestral thing. And we went through like 13 rounds of revisions. 13 rounds? Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we actually got to record the orchestra and everything like that. And then many more tweaks. And then, so that was a bit grueling. Um <clears throat> And I think most composers, we have this kind of uh, muscle inside that flexes unfavorably when you get asked to do a revision, because very often it feels like a race to the bottom. You're taking something that came out as it did and hopefully is, you know, well on its way to being the piece it needs to be. And then you gradually kind of chisel away at it. 
But um, even though it can be an agonizing experience, I would say that nine times out of 10, even though I'm re as reluctant as anyone, um, I go along with it and I would say that the piece ends up being better. If only because you've given it more time and interest and detailed work to kind of refine things. So, you know, and very often the, the revisions are <clears throat> not about the music itself, but how well it's working again to picture. Like, can we hit that point better? Can we, can we emphasize something better? Can we uh, feel this emotion a bit more boldly or a bit less boldly? Mm. You know, so you get a chance to kind of exercise the piece and stretch it in different ways. And, and like I say, I usually it comes out pretty much better and then you can everyone can kind of be happy with it it's also i found it's you know we're working for somebody else and somebody else's vision in this and so <clears throat> by letting directors editors producers even get involved in some of the creative uh decisions and direction they invest more of themselves in the piece therefore they own it more and by virtue of that, they'll kind of like it more, you know. Yeah. So it is kind of a win-win. It, it, it is frustrating sometimes, but it is kind of a win-win. And it's, you know, I think a lot of the process of being a composer for audiovisual media is about finding ways to kind of subjugate your ego and keep that out of the equation and just approach it from an entirely creative point of view, from a musical point of view. How do you deal with that living in LA? Because I've heard that LA is the hub of ego. Yeah, I know. I've heard that too. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it's true in part, but um, I haven't personally found that among the composer community. Um, and by virtue of you know my role in the SCL, I know a lot of them, and I would say quite the opposite that they're an incredibly um, generous often humble um bunch of people that really do amazing work it's a true merit meritocracy so um I, I i don't think it's really so much a profession where egos play an important role in your success maybe quite the opposite you know nobody likes a prima donna there's already enough prima donnas in a in a film crew right um, i agree and if the composer kind of, you know, stomps in and says, well, no, I think it should be like this. It's like, it's not really our role. So, like I said, you know, we're allowed to have egos, but I don't think it's uh, something that is useful to bring into play. The things that are useful to bring into play are insights, instincts, um, experience, things that you've done wrong in the past, um, and a desire and ability to take risks. Those are the kinds of things that that I think get get you moving forward into more interesting places musically. Mm. So time is the enemy, I find, when it comes to music. Time is the yeah. enemy for musicians. So how do you manage that? I mean, you did obviously quite a bit of stuff for Four Kids Entertainment, and yeah. that's pretty much tight deadlines, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how did you kind of learn that ability? Well, I, I found for myself, I probably knew this already, and, and I think a lot of people experience it, is that time seems to be infinitely compressible or expandable. You know, it's a malleable thing, right? So you can procrastinate for weeks and weeks and then find you can actually get everything done. 
in a day. If you really have to, you can kind of go into the zone and do that. Um, so but it's a bit better not to count on that. Um, I think, you know, we, we find efficiencies in the composing process. Uh, we look for those kinds of efficiencies. I, I think as young composers, you know, definitely when I was starting out, we tend to throw everything into a queue, you know, including the kitchen sink. And I think it's partly through insecurity and partly to show off and impress people what you can do, which is also kind of insecurity. Um, but that's not really the right approach. Really, what you want to do is, is figure out through your own career what is actually necessary and what is not. And once you start down that road, it becomes kind of more interesting because you can approach things in a slightly more sparse way. And then you can add things. You can always add things. But, you know, there was something, you know, Brian Eno used to do, which was take a piece he'd written and then mute a whole bunch of tracks and see how it sounded. And, and I do that. Um, I mute tracks and I, fi I find that if, if I don't miss them, they shouldn't be there. So with that knowledge, as you grow as a composer, um, I think, you know, these kinds of, you know, cr creative efficiencies means um, do what works. Don't show off. Again, not about your ego, more about how well can I tell this support this story and very often less is more because the more you put in the more it's going to fight with dialogue and sound effects and so the the lower they'll bring it in the mix which means that all your hard work and this really amazingly dense piece of music that you've given them <clears throat> ends up getting buried so all of that work that you did and that extra time kind of is wasted and when you've gone through that process enough times and suffered that realization you then you then start to figure out okay well maybe i'm not going to make the same mistake this time maybe i'm going to make better choices at the outset of what's really important and what's not then you know there's things like templates obviously that when you're working on a series you're going to want the sound of one episode to the next episode to um you know to be to sound like it's coming basically from the same place or the same orchestra you want to revisit leitmotifs, themes for characters, situational themes, you know, so we're not really looking in TV or film, I think, to create some kind of a mosaic where every piece is different to the last one, quite the contrary. Um, you want to be looking for ways where cues can reoccur and maybe slightly differently. So when I changed my workflow from kind of bouncing stereo or just doing multiple bounces and stuff like that into stemming out kind of in real time onto a second computer. Then what you into the timeline, then what you find what you have is you've got, let's say a string stem and a, a percussion stem and a brass stem and some, you know, kind of more lead melodies and stuff. And then you can look at, you know, somewhere in the timeline where the same character recurs and you can grab and slide some of these stems but not all of them. So maybe it's, in this case, it's just the string stem that is has enough of that melody uh, or harmonic structure to remind us that that's the character we've already seen. And this is we're stepping into the next stage of his story or her story. And so that's another efficiency, you know, um, that I think is incredibly useful, you know, 
and finding ways to to reuse stuff is not a crime, you know. In some in, people make it out writing. like it is a crime, though, don't they? They do, they yeah. do, but it's it's really. Um, I don't think it works. I think people get lost if every piece is different. You know, um, I remember I can't remember which film it was. It was one of the Clint Eastwood films, and in true Clint Eastwood fashion, you know, he kind of wrote a three-note piano motif. And that just happens through the entire movie. Hmm. And I honestly didn't find it was particularly repetitive. It totally worked. You know, so I think he takes that kind of to the extreme, if you like. But it also demonstrates, you know, how, how true this is, that you do not need to take people on this like crazy eclectic journey unless, you know, the, the material requires that. But most of the time you want to create familiarity and then you want to work with that familiarity to evolve it in interesting ways and in surprising ways. You did mention less is more. Is that also because like when you start layering, you can actually run into problems with phasing and certain instruments not cutting through? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's one part of it. Uh, I think a lot of it boils down to orchestration and that's something you know I very much learnt on the job. Um, uh, I come at composing uh, through the keyboard, through the piano. That's what I studied, um, as well as drums. And so, pianists tend to make one particular kind of mistake, which is that if you want to build richness and volume on the piano, you add notes. You add notes, and so yeah. you have this kind of additive thing. And when you try to move that over to an orchestra, what you get is a big mush. You don't get clarity. Uh, you lose clarity. You lose kind of the sense of richness. And so with orchestr orchestration, you want to, you know, you very much you'll operate in fifths and octaves or whatever, but uh, you'll spread things out uh, across the orchestra. Um, there are obviously exceptions to that. But um, but I think coming at scoring from a piano mentality is kind of a handicap that you want to avoid. Uh, you want to kind of try as far as possible to write individual instruments. And that will allow you to create counterpoints and stuff like that. And it'll, it'll help you not fall in that trap of just adding stuff, you know, to try to dress up a particular harmony. So how long did it take you for you to learn that? To learn that about piano? And then transferring it over. Well, I, I actually started doing courses in orchestration while I had my day job. Um, and so I, I learned that particular nugget even before I got uh, composing opportunities. Again, I didn't really set out to be a composer, but I wanted, you know, I wanted to know more about music. I've always loved orchestral music. And stuff. So I learned that early on, but I never really got to put that to the test until I would say like a good 10 years into my composing career when I could look back on what I'd written and say, oh, I totally fell in that trap. Yeah. You know, I need to rethink this and, and start to practice what was preached to me and what I'm preaching, which is, you know, understand orchestration better. And if you do that well, you know, as we like to say, the orchestra mixes itself. You don't need to start playing with volumes a lot because you know, the, you know, just whether it's the position or um, in the, in the, you know, the stereo surround field or the, uh, the pitch, the tessitura, all these different things, 
you can work with in interesting ways to deliver an emotion um, and staying out of the way of, of dialogue and sound design and all of that kind of stuff. Hmm. Now, I've heard a quote from you saying that you're not really into hobbies. You don't like hobbies. You have more of the mindset of an inventor when it comes to anything you do. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that I don't approach things as hobbies because um, I'm not quite sure what a hobby is. It's like I, I, I'm not particularly interested in filling up spare chunks of time with things that are, you know, loosely meaning, <laughs> meaningful or something. <laughs> I just, you know, if I set about doing something, I kind of get into it, whatever it is. And then, and then because of that, you know, it tends to become something you know, more serious in my life. I mean, serious is the wrong word, but more, you know, uh, more deliberate. And and so I kind of go off on multiple careers and multiple tangents. And I, I, I've certainly, I mean, more recently since I've been making art and sculpting, I, I do get the question is like, how do you kind of uh, pass yourself out into all of these different creative pathways you know because often i'm you know i'll put a coat of paint and then it needs to dry so i'll run back to my music studio and i'll carry on writing music and then i'll run back up when i need to apply some other thing and so i'm constantly moving between one studio and the other um and you're getting cardio at the same time i'm getting cardio at the same time um and and i've certainly answered that question in this way which is that i think the the essence of creativity, whether it's in uh, graphic art or uh, music, and it's many, many infinite different forms, it's kind of the same seed. And so in a sense, my challenge to myself is not so much to become, you know, a good composer, but just to become a good creator of things, which means it's more of a... Um, it's a slightly different process. It's not, it's not enslaved to music or art or something like that. It's more, there's a seed in the process of, of creativity. And if you can make that your kind of your expertise, then you can kind of create and you can access creativity on pretty much anything, you know, mm. anything really. And I find that a little bit less confining, more interesting, actually. Fair um, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So neuroscience, that's your background. How did you yeah. incorporate that into music or even art or actually anything you do? Well, I think I, I incorporate it sometimes uh, very literally and sometimes avoid it very pers purposefully. And so in situations where I kind of embrace what I know of neuroscience and then research more particular things are in pieces that are, for example, I, I did a series called Sonic Journeys that are specifically aimed at changing a person's emotional state and physiological state, for example, slow down their heartbeat. Uh, and so I'm bringing in a knowledge of of you know, human physiology and neuroscience into a very uh, purposeful kind of uh, musical journey that is more, for example, in the health sphere or um, geared towards productivity or um, 
you know, where there's a specific outcome that you want. And so that might be more in my work in branding and stuff like that. When it comes to writing music, kind of whether it's a score or writing music for music's sake, um, I definitely avoid thinking about neuroscience in any form. Um, I, I think that, you know, in no sense does music submit, nor should it submit, to kind of probing of um, and the deconstructions of the conscious mind. Mm. I think that's, you know, like singing about architecture was the old, the old saying, you know, <laughs> talking about music is like singing. About, you know, it, it's, uh, I certainly, maybe I do bring in, into it a just generalized understanding from neuroscience, which is that music, creating music does not happen at a conscious level. It happens at an unconscious level much like a dream and a lot of creativity happens there so the only thing we can do really as composers is as i like to put it we can set the table really well and maybe the muse will show up so i try to uh em really uh embrace the idea that certainly my you know my conscious mind is not at all the part of me that is writing music and is not even capable of it or capable of writing anything interesting so when you when know? you're when you're composing what's what's your method then are you humming a melody are you sitting there at a keyboard like how does how does the melody come to you well i mean i think everyone has their different approach in my case i'm not a melody driven person that means i'm not you know it doesn't mean i'm not capable of writing a melody it's that particularly when it comes to film and television related stuff, melody may, be, may have a secondary importance. Mm. Um, what has the primary importance is the emotional uh, content. And the emotional content is ultimately driven by the harmonic structure. Are we major, minor? You know, that's what's going to set a particular tone. And so I usually start there. And my process is of hearing things that are not yet there. So I'll hear in my head, it's like, I can hear that there should be a flute or an oboe doing this, and then there should be something else. And so it's kind of like doing a puzzle. And as you plug pieces of the puzzle in, the the kind of the holes become more gaping. It's like, oh God, yes, I've got to fill that one. And this is the piece to do it. So I kind of come at it a little backwards. Um, there are situations where, you know, I'll, I'll I have a specific melody in mind and I'll, you know, hum it and say, if I'm not in my studio, I'll just, you know, record it into my phone and then just, you know, work with that um, and then develop a harmonic structure around it. But predominantly, I'm coming at it from harmony first and then music, uh, melody is secondary. Hmm. So how did you end up doing, I've lost track of how many documentaries you've done for David Attenborough. Uh, how did How did all those opportunities come up? Well, I think, you know, uh, as composers, we are rarely kind of right in front of the stakeholders, you know. Uh, something I learned uh, some years ago, a friend of mine was um, working as a music editor for Howard Shaw, 
when he was working on the first Lord of the Rings. Nice. And she said, she said to me, like, is there anything you want to ask him? Like a piece of advice? And I said, yeah. Like, I asked him the obvious thing. He's like, how does a composer get ahead? And he told her to tell me that we kind of depend on our relationships with directors, predominantly directors, sometimes with editors and producers, particularly in TV. Um, and so we kind of ride their wave. It's hard to kind of create your own wave because, we're, again, we're, we're part of a, a village that is creating this particular movie and we don't want to single, single ourselves out or something like that. So I think um, understanding that, you know, I, I, I rode uh, very consciously other people's successes, people that I worked with, I did the best that I could do. Um, and, you know, I think if one does that and you're, you're, you get along with them fundamentally, it's more important than even the quality of the music that you write. It's like, is it fun to work together? Do you, are you able to create a shorthand so that you understand what they want? and they know how to communicate it to you. Hmm. And if you can do that, then they're going to come back. And they're going to come back, maybe on, not on the next project, so don't lose hope, but they'll come back around. If it was a good experience, they'll always come back around. And, and that's really what happened. I was doing a lot of kind of Discovery Channel uh, documentaries for a, a few different um, uh, production companies based in the UK. They do the majority of, of documentary stuff. And one of those companies, you know, started working with David Attenborough and talked him out of retirement uh, with the lure of doing his first 3D um, film. And David Attenborough, being, being who he is, he's always been a very much a champion of new technologies. Anything that will help immerse people and tell the story that he's trying to tell better, which is invariably the story of the natural world. Mm. So he embraced 3D and more recently he embraced virtual reality and all these kinds of things. So. I was just fortunate to get asked to um, to be on, you know, one of those projects, and that led to nine more, you know, and um, and, and very, I think, very much the majority of those was the same team, the same editors, very often the same producers, um, same location directors and stuff, and so, you know, you just get back in it and like, okay, what are we doing today? We're doing Conquest of the Skies. It's all about birds and pterosaurs and this and that or what are we doing it's galapagos and we're we're in turtles and volcanoes and underwater and um you know you you, you develop these kind of uh, uh professionals <clears throat> slash friendships professional friendships in in this process so and then it really starts to become exciting so do you know him like have you actually met him i have yeah uh, I went uh, to uh, one of the mixes, I think the first one we did, which was Flying Monsters 3D. Um, and I was in London for the mix and I had the opportunity to meet him, chat to him, and mostly just observe how he would go into the vocal booth and like rewrite things on the fly and was incredible. I also chatted with his, um, with his assistant and one of the things she told me was that in his entire career, uh, Sir David has uh, personally handwritten an answer to every letter he's ever received by email or other. Wow. And I think at the time, I probably, you know, was in an egoish place. And I was thinking, well, you know, with me, there's a, plenty of people that fall through the cracks and stuff like that. You know, I've done all these cartoons and like, and I was getting a little bit inundated with 14 year olds. And, 
And I just thought, you know what, if he can do that, why the hell can't I? I mean, that's the right thing to do. And so I've made it my mission ever since, you know, for the past 15 years or something to, uh, even if it's not immediately, but I will always answer every question I get, uh, every, every kind of inquiry, anyone that sends a compliment, even an insult, <laughs> I will, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get a lot of those. Um, you know, uh, it's just, I think it's the polite thing to do, right? So he's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's a lot more profane in person <laughs> it's hard to imagine but you know he you know he's uh he's he's funny he's really funny okay that's cool that's cool well that's that's something to add to the resume there you go yeah um now exchange into... exchange um rude words with sir david attenborough yeah. <laughs> so in, in regards to the industry that you're in right so i've mm. heard in la that's all about networking. You have to get out there and network. You have to go to the parties. You have to attend all these things, even if you don't want to. Um, even though that you've built up, obviously, all these relationships from the time in the industry, do you still have to go out and do all that stuff? And do you even enjoy doing it? I, I, I don't look at it like that. I mean, I think if you look at it as just networking, it, it becomes a slightly impersonal type of thing that yeah i'm pretty much an introvert if you presented it to me that way i'll just say god no i just can't be bothered i just really don't want to do that whereas if 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 i'm seeing it as like i'm going to be able to catch up with some really good friends uh you know in who do the same thing as i do and we can kind of tell tell our sub stories and whatever to each other or just get drunk together or something <laughs> then you know then that's more interesting so i i think it's true in any profession um, not that you need to networks particularly because I don't necessarily think that will lead to a lot um, I know so many I think, people that do it in LA well I'd like to ask them is like has it specifically led to you advancing your career has it has it you know led to specific jobs because in my experience you know it hasn't really happened that way it's more the word of mouth you know, that you worked with this particular director and your name gets passed about. And then you get a call and it's like, oh, so-and-so worked with you and spoke very highly. And, you know, are you available to work on this project? You know, and that's how it goes. It's not because you meet someone at a party who says, yeah, I'm going to be doing this film. And you give them your, you know, your, your business card with a website. And it's just not how it works. It's very much you build on your personal, uh, not just your contacts, but the work that you've done that's your springboard um and i think rather again rather than look at it as kind of networking i think in every profession particularly freelance ones where we can very easily disappear um mm. kind of out of sight out of mind it's incumbent on us to always push ourselves out there to always somehow pop up in in the world that we're supposed to be living in inhabiting which in this case is the world of composing or film um so we 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 need to show up and if if you are shy or you're insecure or you're um you know uh, prefer the introspective side of things you still have to push yourself to go and do that um and i would hazard to say that in the majority of situations it's not you know like going to the dentist it's actually you know i was reluctant to go but i actually had a really good time and i met some cool people and you know we're going to hang out 
And um, so I think it's a little bit more like that. Um, and I don't really have the illusion going into these kinds of things that I'm going to leave with jobs, you know, uh, lined up. That's, I don't think that just doesn't happen that, like, that way. Yeah, because it's amazing to me how many people think that well, they might apply that method. I think it's actually very good the way you look at it. I think what's good is, for example, you know, you need to have a good website. You need to keep it current. You know, uh, at one point I was doing a newsletter and and finding ways to, to write your newsletter. So it's not about you. It's not just like this is what I've done. It's more about these are the projects that I've been fortunate to work on that I think have value. And in my case, it's an easy sell because most of them are documentaries. So it's like, this is an amazing documentary that tells an important story that people should hear. And of helping or using that platform to help push your friends, colleagues, anyone that you work with that is part of, you know, what's helped you um, be better, learn better, you know, um, and always taking the position when you do encounter a potential project of not what I can get from the project, but what can I contribute to it? And that, that leads to a very different kind of conversation, um, you know, than, hey, can I get this fee and this reputation? Which leads me to something actually that, um, that I, I kind of live by these days, which is uh, a quote from uh, composer Tom Lennertz, who's done a lot of the Marvel yeah. um, movies and, and, and things. And we did a, an SEL seminar some years ago, actually, I just I just moved to LA, so about ten years ago, and he said, "Okay, when you're faced with a project, ask yourselves this: Does it feed my bank account, or does it feed my reputation, my career, or does it feed my soul?" And if you can answer yes to one of those, do the project. And I think that's really helpful because not all projects are going to feed your soul, feed your bank account and feed your <laughs> reputation. Very likely it's going to be one or maybe two. Um, so I think that's a kind of good way to do it. You know, some projects you'll take on because of the love of it and because, you, you know, you believe in that project. But, you know, it's probably not going to get seen by a whole lot of people. It's going to do a festival around and stuff. But you like the people and you want to help. You want to support it. it. It deserves to be told. Uh, other projects, you know, it's like, this is a great, you know, it's a great budget. I get to work with a, an orchestra and this and that. And is it a phenomenally deep piece of cinema, you know, that's art? No, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe not, you know. Um, so I think kind of having that flexibility to have different reasons for doing things gives you a lot more, you know, a lot more freedom, a lot of different ways to have the conversation mm. uh, uh, when, you, when you meet directors and when you're, you know, they're tending you to work on it. You, you are a very philosophical guy. Have you always been that way? Um, probably the last person to ask, but um, I, I think I benefit from not having had a very kind of uh, single-minded career um, in the sense I didn't kind of come out of high school and go to music school and then do a master's in music for film. I started off at medical school, 
and then switched to neuroscience. I did two years of medicine, then finished my degree in neuroscience. I then worked as a sculptor for a while and did some different things in Paris. And, and then I ended up working for the UN. I was a uh, uh, specialist in Chernobyl, using my scientific knowledge to help kind of translate to, if you like, vulgarize the science to uh, diplomats and politicians and stuff that led to me to go to New York to continue working on Chernobyl and then I worked on landmines and so I worked for the UN for a total of eight years and uh, before I even you know started thinking about music as a career I always did it on the side um, yeah maybe as a hobby even <laughs> maybe that's why I don't do hobbies anymore because <laughs> they never stayed as hobbies you know um, so I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of different experiences. And uh, by virtue of that, I think it gives you a slightly lateral outlook um, at any particular thing, uh, as opposed to have, you know, there, there are disadvantages in that because, you know, I haven't dedicated my life to becoming either a virtuoso player um, or perhaps, you know, you know, deepening my knowledge of theory and all of this, like so many others have in, in my profession. So I, you know, I also suffer from that. But I think the, yeah, if you want to call it philosophical or, or just, you know, have a, a broader outlook to two things, I do, I think I do try to bring that into, into the work I do. I also, I, I've never felt um, kind of like an entertainer. Um, it's something I've struggled with, you know, you know, when you have to kind of fill in a box about, you know, to drop down, yeah, yeah. you know, about what, what's your profession or so what, what field are you in? Like, again, architecture, uh, engineering and stuff. And then there's one selection. It's the only one I can fit in, which is entertainment. And I always kind of have a little kind of squirm inside because I don't really, I'm not doing it to entertain people. I'm doing it to connect with people. Um, I'm doing it to explore uh, the complexities of human emotion in ways that language, verbal language, cannot necessarily do. Um, I'm doing it to help tell stories that should be told and to um, it, not just, you know, me connect with people, but to connect people together. You know, so I can find a million other reasons that I'll do it, but it's not to you know, stand in front of you with a clown nose and jump up and down and say, okay, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a particularly funny guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I approach my life with a certain heaviness and music personally, it helps me become a little bit lighter if I can get some of these emotions out. So there's a self-expression part of it. That's also important to me. Um, fair enough. Yeah, I, I know you've done a lot of traveling around the world. Has that broadened your horizons and changed the direction in some of your music? I think um, obviously it's allowed me to discover music of the world and instruments of the world. And that's been a big part of, of you know, what I've done on many different projects, certainly you know, documentary projects you know, that are set in different locations and having a, a knowledge uh, even if perfunctory, of uh, of musical forms from those regions of the world and the instruments, you know, has no doubt been very advantageous. But I would say that the 
you know, being lucky enough to travel, it's it, the influence that it's had on on me and and my music um, is much more of a people and kind of human experience thing. Um, I mean, we we compose from our own experiences, and I think if we kind of box ourselves in, as as some people do, to be influenced by other film scores too much you know particularly when you get a piece with a temp track in it already it's like oh god i'm boxed in you know um i think eventually you'll run dry you'll run dry creatively you know um because we need to go outside of you know outside of yourself and outside of the film or whatever it is outside of the story uh i think the, the kind of the well of our creativity rises just in living human experiences and that's like the number one thing i tell you know people who i mentor is just get out there and live experiences as many as you can in as many different places because that's what's going to color um the 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 music that you write it's how you're going to give it dimension and depth or even just simplicity um is by having had the opportunity to feel personally something or observe differences and commonalities between people in every different part of the world, realize how similar we all are in a majority of ways. And that becomes the underpinning for the music that we write because we want it to be as universal as possible. We want our film to be as universal as possible, definitely the musical part of it. So I, I, I kind of make it um a requirement for myself and it you know it was pretty hard during the pandemic because yeah well that's right you know, i was high risk so i couldn't leave my house for a year and a half um and i'm pretty restless so it was really very hard um you know because uh i'm very aware at least for myself that i need to be living in order to be writing i really i don't allow myself to get too much inspiration from you know within the medium in this case film scores or if it's art from within the art world the inspiration i think that i need comes from living interacting seeing observing feeling hmm. so when you have traveled have you traveled because of the music musical projects or are you just going and choosing somewhere to go and then just as a new experience i um to fill, fill no, I, I, I kind of always find a reason to go, you know. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll think up some, some project or, you know, someone there that, you know, we get along well and we've talked about working together and like, okay, let's, I'll come over this time, you come over next time and, you know, let's move a project forward, whatever it might be. Um, I, I've, I've always found that kind of just being a tourist doesn't get me deep enough into the pulse of a place. I totally agree. I totally agree. And you don't really learn anything, I feel. You don't really learn anything. And, you know, mm. I when I originally left the UK, I didn't intend at that point to be away for the next 32 years of my life, <laughs> you know, uh, to live the majority of my life away. Um, and what I discovered... Even in my, you know, from London, I went straight to Paris. I discovered that much more fun than being a tourist was working 
working there in different things. You know, I sold I sold catalogs at a at an exhibition, and I did all these kinds of different things. I drove uh, one of these like uh, dolly pickup pickup things and stuff. You know, um, it, it. I realized that it's you know you you get into like the the subway or the metro or whatever it is with everyone else going to work or at the opposite time, you know, and and then you see how, you know, what makes a city tick, or what makes a place tick, what, how do they live? And by getting deeper into it at that level, and I think you can only do that by working there, um, you really you really develop a, a sense for the place. You really start to be able to grow in your understanding. Um, and I just think it's a lot more fun than, okay, went to a museum today, <laughs> tomorrow we're gonna go to the park. It's like, no, I went, you know, I remember one of the most exciting things when I arrived in Paris was that part, as part of my job, I had to go with not great French at the time to the hardware store and buy some plywood. And so I had all these words written down. Plywood is contreplaqué. You know, you can't make that up. And and just like the, the challenge of it. And it's like, this is great. I'm buying like a plug in a foreign country. <laughs> That's much more interesting than, you know, you know, sitting on a park bench. Yeah, yeah. And so I've always done that. You know, when I came to New York, I already had my, you know, I had the internship at the UN headquarters. And I've always done that ever since, um, you know. And so wherever I go, it's always, there's some kind of a, you know, it's not a higher purpose or anything like that. But there's a reason for being there that allows me to, to connect with people in a work sense. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people can be paralyzed by fear, but I get the sense from you that if you fear something, that makes yeah. you do it more. Yeah, I'm paralyzed by fear, but I don't give a beep. You know, I don't you let... You um, It's all good. <laughs> I do it... Okay. I, 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 I do things anyway. It's not that I'm a person who is fearless. Quite the contrary. I experience an enormous amount of fear. I suspect a lot of uh, composers and creators do. We have to be calibrated in a way that is very, very sensitive in order to be able to understand and speak between the lines of dialogue and really kind of tweeze out the psychology of what's happening, you know, on screen or anything, you know, and just to write good music that touches people. Um, so it's a... You know, it's an awkward combination, I think, for, for, for composers in general, because you have this vulnerability. At the same time, you have to keep putting yourself out there in the world. So, you know, um, I think it's, you know, it's an ongoing struggle, but not one that is wholly unpleasant. Um, Does it get easier as you get older? No. <laughs> no, it just stays the same. No, no it doesn't stay the same. I... I think in, in, in some senses it grows. Really? It grows. Yeah, the fear can grow because of multiple reasons. You know, it could grow because you set your ambitions higher. Expectations, I suppose. Your expectations. Yeah. yeah. And you set yourself up to fall even harder <laughs> than when you were nobody. Um, yeah. Fear can grow also because you understand the fallibility of people, including yourself. So, for example, when you get on a plane and you're 12 years old, it's like, cool, I'm going to get the window seat and this is awesome. When you're 53, which is what I am, um, you're thinking, boy, I hope the pilot is, <laughs> you know, 
really on top of things because it's really bumpy and uh, I'm not really enjoying this very much. You know, you, you realize the, infallib the fallibility of, of the things around you, that people make mistakes. You make mistakes all of the time. And, you know, and that can certainly lead to, you know, building, building fear. And I think it also requires one to come to terms with more. You know, I think as we grow, we become more aware of more things. We get become less blinkered, hopefully. And as your perspective enlarges, like, oh, shit, mm. uh, all of this is happening, too, that I've got to somehow contend with. And then in our own lives, the demands on us also change as we grow and we have families and things like that, you know. Um, so the stakes, the stakes grow. And how we deal with it is 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 ultimately the defining feature of our lives. So what's the thing that you do to deal with it? Besides, obviously, music, because I know that's like a therapy. But is there anything else that you do? Um, what, to deal with the well, growing... Any, yeah, yeah, the growing I mean, anxiety, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I meditate... Nice. That's um, cool. I started doing that about 15 years ago. Everything seems to have happened 15 years ago, but around about then. Um, and on and off. Um, but I, you know, I very quickly understood that it was extremely helpful for me. Um, I, you know, I kind of go out on little quests and vision quests and things like that. Um, What's a um, vision quest? Well, I don't want to get too deep in it, but, you know, it's like, you know, just going out into nature and... Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, dis discovering things. Um, Being one with the, with nature. Is that sometimes kind of... with the assistance of psychedelics. And... <laughs> yes, and... and, and uh, really to... Uh, set myself, you know, you know, intentions to deal with specific things but to leave the confines of my studio and get perspective, um, however that can come about. Mm, mm. And, you know, whether it's sitting on a rock, you know, or on a beach uh, or something like that, uh, I find that nature is, you know, how we humans, certainly myself, we're, we're kind of tuned to find that the ultimate balm, the ultimate kind of context giver or proportion giver perspective giver you know and so i find that um when i can do that and get out into nature it, it helps me put whatever you know little drama i'm dealing with in whether it's in a film score or something like that it help puts it in a more healthy perspective so i think we as as humans go back to the neuroscience is we're kind of primed to uh you know fight or fright and flight fight or flight right? yeah and um and so when we're under pressure or under a deadline to deliver a cue just to deliver a cue we can go through all those experiences physiologically as though someone is trying to kill us that's why we have those reactions yeah sweaty palms racing heartbeat um, you know, uh, cloudy, clouded vision, all those kinds of things. And so it's, 
ultimately, it's inappropriate, right? Because someone isn't trying to kill us. We're just feeling somehow under threat. Um, and I think it's important to kind of get those things regularly back into perspective so that you don't live your life, and particularly a composing life, where you really, I mean, we're enormously lucky to be able to do this kind of thing. And I think trying to try not to lose sight and never take for granted the fact that this is a, a real gift to be able to do this for one's life um, and not allow yourself too often to become consumed within a particular drama because it's really when you take a look at it it's like just get just get it done you know and um and go out and play fair enough now one of my uh favorite soundtracks by you is for manhattan night Thank um you. can you tell me how you came up with that musical palette because i find it quite interesting and because there's certain mm. there's certain areas where it's like you you blend or you fuse music with sound effects. I can't tell whether it's a sound effect or if it's actually an instrument you're playing. Well, I mean, with that project, you know, the, the director and I have been friends for a long, long time. You know, I, I was involved in his like first film, short films, and um, and when he uh, developed the script from the novel. Um, uh, Manhattan Nocturne, as it, you know, it was originally called. Um, you know, he shared that with me, and already, so this is ten, I think, a full ten years before he actually was able to get the actors and get the budget and everything to make the film. So I'd been involved in a very early capacity, and so I had actually started writing melodies ten years before, and I, I never told him particularly, and I never shared them with anyone. It was just ideas that I was putting together. And, and so when it came around to, okay, the film is happening, I already pretty much had written all of it, all of the important scenes, all the important situational things. And I'd done it, unlike usually when I'm doing, you know, kind of a fairly bombastic Discovery Channel thing, I just did it sitting at a piano. And I wanted it to be driven by that kind of more focused experience rather than you know, the cornucopia of things we can choose from in our sample libraries and synths and stuff where we can, again, quite easily get lost. So I wanted to just keep it very focused around what I would come up with on the piano and then see how I would then evolve that with orchestra and other sounds. The film itself, I mean, clearly it lent itself to a field noir approach, you know, it was dark and jazzy, New York based. So we knew, we, even early on, even just from the script, where it was set, the, the kind of cadence of it, that was going to be the, the underpinning. And we just kind of went, went, went into that way. So what was very different from that film to pretty much everything else I've ever done is that they edited it to music that I'd already written rather than to temp tracks uh, that I then had to play catch up with. That's quite unusual, and, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I loved the process of it because then I didn't have to, you know, sometimes I, I would say to the director, Brian, um, like I was thinking, why don't I get someone like Mike Lang, who's one of the absolute most brilliant pianists here in LA. And he said, no, I like the way you played it. <laughs> and I was like, are you sure? All right, okay. So there was a lot of like, are you sure you don't want me to do something? No, we love it. You know, focus on the other parts, focus on the, the new parts, maybe the more textural stuff. Okay. So it was a really, really nice process. I really enjoyed that. That's cool. 
Uh, final question before I let you go. Man, time flies. Um, what is well, it? it does, but it's also infinitely expandable and compressible. But not on the clock like this. Creative time. Creative time creative is expandable. Time. Well, and the time, the way we view it, is kind of man-made, right? In terms of a clock. Right. Can, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah, a exactly. that's a All rabbit right. hole. We can All go right. I'm going to stop quibbling. I'm going to yeah. stop quibbling. Um, so, yeah. in terms of stuff that you haven't done that you still wish to do, because I'm, you've done so much stuff. I think because of my work in immersive media, spatial audio, virtual reality, augmented reality. I have a very, very keen interest, and, and I experiment quite a lot in not so much creating, you know, what everyone does, which is let's create a jungle scene, you know, an environment with sound effects and stuff like that, an ambience to put ourselves in, but creating an experience that is musical in nature, but that is somehow driven um, in, a, in, in a more spatial way. Hmm. So conventionally we tend to think of right you can have mono you can have stereo you can have surround nowadays we can have up and down as well and we can even dissolve the concept of speakers completely and go into a world of ambisonics where speakers are kind of represented as imaginary places in space and the system that i'm working with here which is a 17.1 and if i bring my front left and right is a 19.1 speaker system so 19 speakers and a sub what can I do with that that is not going to be gimmicky, but is going to give hopefully something of a transcendent experience, something that people can kind of live inside as a musical experience and move around in it and that that changes. For example, as you approach one speaker, you start to hear a particular harmony that changes the chord from a major to minor or whatever. Um, so those kinds of things interest me very much, and I think it's largely untapped. Uh, but that's something that I think is available to every music writer now. And the price of admission is free because a lot of these tools, they are free. Um, so I've taught a class on this uh, at Berkeley and at um, um, Columbia College Chicago, uh, Masters in Film program, where I try to get people excite as excited as I am about the potential of what we can do with spatial music beyond just taking a track by the Rolling Stones and putting a Dolby Atmos version of it on iTunes. It's like, what do you do knowing that you've got all of this breadth and flexibility? What will you do with it compositionally if you start from scratch rather than taking a piece after the fact and just remixing it? So that's definitely, you know, something that appeals to me. I think on a, on a more kind of emotional creative writing i've i've done a lot of epic you know and so i tend to be interested now in uh more intimate kind of stylings of music um and also a fusion of that with you know as you described it in manhattan night um textures that are not necessarily synthetic, but that work really well with orchestra that can kind of surprise and kind of stretch you to think it's like, what is that? What is that? I'm not sure what that is, but it's working. So I'm kind of interested in that side of things as well. Because it must be hard to keep your finger on the pulse because technology is always changing. Music is constantly evolving. So how do you try and stay ahead of the game? Because you're teaching it as well at the SCL. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a kind of pencil and paper composer. 
Um, I very much from the beginning have loved the fact that I do it through technology. I mean, that's it's uh, it's an air, it's it's a, an approach that I follow. You know, I read about technology and science and you know astronomy and quantum physics and those and you know, and new gear um, and new technologies. My whole s studio is Dante based, which I just love. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, you know what you can do with it and then take my laptop on location and then just plug it in with an ethernet cable and you know be controlling a whatever 32 channels uh, of sound and haptics and everything like that from within the exact same dante setup so i'm i do i stay on top of that not because i have to but because i like to um and it has limitations i mean i i've never really got deep into uh, game engine um i just Know, know enough to be able to describe what I need and I can do a little bit of you know work in game engine but I never learned to code I think I kind of reach reach the, the limits of what I can fill in my head um <laughs> at this point um yeah. so and I think as composers we have to be on top of the technology really because if for no other reason then it gets expensive if you can't fix your own or troubleshoot your own system and you always have to appeal to someone else that's like mm. yeah i think i'm too Not cheap really. to, yeah i'm the same because i'd be too cheap i think as well yeah I'm it's too cheap it's, to ask anyway, people for help <laughs> and i you know i learn all of this everything composing all of it you know my whole life has been from one point of view a series of catastrophic failures you know but as they say in silicon valley fail fast and learn fast you know not to repeat that and so you know, life uh, has branded me continuously every day with a new lesson, you know, that I hopefully can bring to bear in what I do. And so I'm very much an experiential kind of learner. And for me, even getting my hands dirty with technology, replacing drives, this, that and the other. I think that's part of it. Mm, good answer. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking time out. Thank you. This. Um, so if anybody wants to follow your work and keep up to date with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, they can. Um, I mean, my website is at um, uh, www, just my name, joelduek.com. Uh, you can reach me uh, directly by email at onetrackmusic at me.com. And you will reply. And I will reply eventually. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in seeing a little bit of the virtual reality and stuff, uh, the, uh, the company we have is called Echo VR. So you just go to eccovr.com. And if you're interested in looking at my art, it's LMNT, like element, but lmnt.art. And uh, hopefully that'll make for a pleasant you know, pleasant couple of hours exploring my world. And, but I'd love to hear from anybody. And I, I always take the approach that uh, a lot of people have passed, you know, incredibly golden and inspiring information and knowledge and insights to me throughout my career. And it's, it's, it's something that I need and love to do as well. So feel free to reach out anytime if I can help. Cool. Hey, Joel, thanks again. Very much appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Reese. Cool. That's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe.